Time to go to bookmarks, and we've also been looking forward to this one. I have never seen a group of students at this age so engaged for so long in one spot ever, said one teacher, describing our next guest. She has brought the gift of storytelling, reading and writing to thousands of children in Aotearoa over the past four decades. She is Mona Williams, a professional storyteller, author and teacher. Uh, she delivered the 2023 Pānui for Read NZ, Te Po uh, Murumura. It's called Tell Us a Story Out of Your Own Mouth. And Mona Williams joins us now. Hello. Hello, and thank you for having me. Great to have you on the show, and I believe this might be the first mother-daughter bookmarks combo because we had <laughs> Sheba Williams with us at the start of 2020. You must be very proud of what she's achieved as a cabaret performer. Wonderful, yes. I'm I'm proud of her. And she called me today um, at noon to say, Mom, are you excited? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I of course I'd be. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. Can you tell us a bit about your early life in your home country, Guyana? Guyana is um, in South America, and it produces cricketers like Clive Lloyd. Ha-ha, <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. And uh, I think the wife of Michael Keynes, Shakira Bashk, is Guyanese. <laughs> yeah. And there is a black baroness, Baroness Amos, in Britain. And she's from Guyana. And I suppose the only other thing we're known for is the one-cent magenta stamp. It's the rarest in the world because huh. there's only one of them. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. And we're connected to... I suppose, to the literary world through Booker's, the Booker Prize for Literature. And um, I don't suppose anybody asks now, Booker's, where did you get your money? But it came from slave plantations in what used to be British Guiana. It's now Guyana. And uh, at the time of independence in 1966, Booker's was the largest landowner apart from the government. So... We, um, we. every time I, I listen to the shortlist and the winners of the Booker Prize, I say, well, that's where um, for, over, you know, for over a century um, Booker's got its money from yeah, our country a, and the slave plantations, and it, now it gets it from the rum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there has been a bit of a reckoning in the past few years out of the, the British wealth that was created on the back of slavery, but perhaps still more work to be done there. Is, yes. is your family connected to those slave plantations? Um, we are either the descendants of, well, I, I am a descendant of the ones that um, took part in the, it's supposed to have been the largest slave rebellion in the British Empire. Huh. It was the Demerara Rebellion of, 18, of, of 1823. It occurred in um, the, it began in August the 18th. So this is exactly 200 years since that slave rebellion. And on my father's side, I'm a descendant of those who survived. And I'm thankful to those who were the martyrs. And on my mother's side, um, we are from Barbados in the Caribbean, also a slave colony. And um, my great-great-grandmother immigrated from Barbados and came to the old... British Guiana, so I'm the fifth generation living, uh, born in South America, but of course now I live here mm. in um, in New Zealand. So you asked about my early years. Well, I was born in the black section of a hospital, 
in my little village of Mackenzie, and it's a bauxite town, and it, it's meant to have had the largest deposits of bauxite in the world. And from bauxite, of course, you get um, aluminum. But the ore was shipped out to Canada, the in the eastern Canada, to the Saguenay terminals in eastern Canada, and for the bauxite, which should have brought us, oh, huge wealth, mm. billions upon billions, because uh, it, it, the mines were operated, what, 24-7 for over 70 years. But we only got 2.8% of its value, so <laughs> we're <Gosh>. still poor. <laughs> yeah. And the bauxite's gone. I went to school in my little village in Demerara, and I had to win a scholarship to get um, to high school. So I was sent away to go to school when I was seven, sent away from home, and um, lived in the capital and had the harshest sort of training because I was going to have to sit an exam in a language I didn't speak. I, mm. I, I understood English, but I, I spoke Creolese at home. And you had to write your exam papers and understand all of the the math and so forth in in proper English. Yeah. And But I won a scholarship and then went on to... Bishop's High School for Girls, the top school, and stayed there for seven years. And our exams, once again, were set in England. So the questions had to do with uh, mm. open fire heating or oh central heating. Yeah, but completely we lived, foreign <laughs> we lived, context. We lived in the, we lived in the, in the Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were living uh, about four degrees off the equator equatorially. Yeah. And, um, and the place also is below sea level. Uh, so the Dutch were the ones who built the dikes and the cocos and the mm. seawalls. And so... Uh, I couldn't answer some of the questions, but, you know, you you do your best. And I passed both ordinary level GCE and advanced level, which puts you in line for um, university education. Let me pause you there because we'll come back to that. But I'd like to play... Um uh, we've asked you to choose some music for this conversation as well, and maybe a nice time to bring in Leontine Price. Tell me about the impact oh, of this. Oh, Leontine Price. Yes. Well, when you're growing up in a British colony and you're told that black people, um, you know, achieve nothing, they've given nothing to the world, blah, 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 the only way that you could subvert that message is to get a black person who has been a high achiever mm. and uh, play her music. So one day, I mean, I'd always, I, I loved music, so I'd always listen to Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and Maria Callas and love them. And one day I saw an album and it had this very black face of a very black woman with huge lips. And her name was Leontine Price. And she was going to sing Exultate Jubilate by Mozart. And she and as she sang, I was looking at the picture of a prima donna assoluta singing this very melismatic song at the top of her register. And I started to cry. And I, I couldn't tell anybody what it was about. You know, you didn't say... And then the next time I heard another um, s song uh, b sung by her, it was once again in the school assembly 
which was very English, very white, and here was this black woman, and she was singing Que Il Bel Sonia, and that is from Puccini's opera, and this is Donizetti, and she um, she sang this song, and it lived with me, and then finally, when I was leaving San Francisco to come to live in New Zealand, there was a concert, and it was Leontine Price at the San Francisco Opera, and of course, I, I excitedly oh, wow. went, and there were all these young people, yeah. and there were, we were all standees, and they had their motorcycle helmet sitting <laughs> on the ground behind <laughs> them. <laughs> and she sang for two hours this aria, that aria, ending with um, a spiritual. And then there were encores and encores and encores. And even before she began this encore, I I knew in my soul, this is the last one <laughs> she'd sing and this would be it. And so I hope you'll enjoy it. It's sung at the very top of your register. It's not the best because it's a bit hurried. And if you get a chance, Que Il Bel Sonia, but with the Rome Orchestra behind her, a 1968 recording. Okay, let's get That's on. even better. Here it comes. Beautiful. Kia ora, talking to Moda Williams, storyteller on Bookmarks today. She's choosing the music and telling us about a few of her favourite things. Uh, and we're getting a bit of her life story as well. So you got the scholarship to Stanford, incredible work based on incredible hard work. And you married someone from New Zealand and came to Aotearoa in 1971. Mona, what did you make of the place? Well, I was excited because everybody said it was the gorgeous well there were there were Americans telling me this from San Francisco yeah. and they said look it's the most gorgeous little place it's about two decades behind America but yeah. honestly it's a gem and my husband said look it's um it's a land of milk and honey and when i came i realized 
I couldn't drink the milk. But uh, <laughs> that's I, I'm lactose intolerant, <laughs> yeah. and I didn't I didn't realize that. Uh, it was small, um, and I had come from Stanford to New Zealand specifically because um, New Radio New Zealand Television New Zealand had asked my professor whether we ought to have a second channel. Huh. And in 1971, you only had one channel. Yes. It was black and white. Yeah. And I was in San Francisco where on cable you had 30 channels. I was working also after graduation at KQED, Channel 9. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And they were they were in color. Color was, was um, coming in then. The colors weren't stable, but we still had color television. Mm. And I had worked with... Um, you know different programs one was with dr the the guy who said that we all came from old duvai gorge <laughs> dr leaky and uh we did um documentaries on uh the atomic energy commission and some of the most wonderful things i did um i made a, a why well, was part of a four part storytelling and dance program and it was um, for the African-American section of the San Francisco population. So it was entered for an Emmy in the Ethnic Programs Division. Mm. And that was just part of my experience. And then one of the most wonderful things was um, uh, fundraising because KQED was public, publicly yeah. funded. And we always had, and this was my sort of third time doing it, we always had um, things to auction, and you auctioned the little Samoyed puppy that was gorgeous, but that went first because the children had to go to bed uh -huh. and the parents would be buying it for the children. And then next you had the uh, very nubile 18-year-old belly dancer with a beautiful body because the young boys would be interested in that or mm -hmm. the young men. And you, you had to stagger the whole evening like that and then the, the ladies, the blue rinse set would be interested in the free tickets to either the opera or the symphony. But you knew that you'd get your money your last big item would be the business community because what was on offer was um, a weekend at Chateau Mouton Rothschild as guests of Baron et Baronne, Guy de Rothschild. And, you know, if you, if you were there for the weekend and the big dinners, then you were meeting all the moneyed people yeah. of the Middle East and of Europe. And so I was, I cut my teeth on fundraising and so forth. And my professor said, look, I can't tell you whether they'll have a second channel, but do go. And so I came with every expectation <laughs> that I would get a, a wonderful job and people would listen to me and know such and such. And of course, it didn't work out like that, but life, that's life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were maybe behind where the US were, but pro probably quite backwards. And I mean, I imagine you would have looked pretty different uh, to a lot of the people in New Zealand in the early 90s. I was stunningly <laughs> black. And, yeah. and the associations were that a black person just couldn't be qualified and um, and there was a very sad thing that was to influence my life for the next 51 years. Yeah. And that was when I um, presented my Stanford degree for its um, for it to be assessed. Because it was a foreign de degree, you had to take it into the Department of Education. Mm. 
in Wellington. And um, when I came back, uh, you know, thinking, oh, I'd been assessed. Everybody knows Stanford. Well, yeah. the person said, and what's what's a junior university? And I said, oh, I don't know. I've never heard of it. Well, you should. It says here, Leyland Stanford Junior University. I said, no, 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 no. Leyland Stanford Junior was the son, the dead son of Leyland Stanford <laughs> Senior, oh a railway baron. That's embarrassing. And embarrassing this, it's for more New than Zealand. That. It's more than that. And, um, and therefore, the, the railway baron, who had billions, um, built a university, endowed it, and named it after his dead son. Yeah. But I wasn't believed. And so the guy said, well, this is a wanky, yanky, bogus degree from a fake university valued at zero. And that has been my assessment of my Stanford degree and all of my um, experience for the last 51 years. But, you know what they say, <laughs> when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. So I didn't let it stop me. I went, I had to um, swivel sideways. But it's a pity that my knowledge of uh, television and my knowledge from Stanford had no part in really in my life here. Yeah, and, I'm uh, sorry to hear that. It's oh, a look, very uh, disappointing Jesse, story. Yes, Jesse, I got a pub. I got a, a written apology from the government. So, <laughs> yeah, we let it go. <laughs> um, I'm keen to get into some of your picks. Let's play another uh, track that you've chosen, and this one features a New Zealander, Kirita Kanawa. Tell us why you've chosen Chant de Verne. Oh, the songs of the Auvergne. Look, how how could you go past Kiri? And if you listen to this one, the power of her voice and the orchestration is wonderful. She charms you. So it's one of the songs, it's a whole suite of songs from the Auvergne. And each one is such a gem, it'll delight you. But I chose this one. Dame Kiri, thank you.
RNZ National Kirikitikanawa. Uh, the choice of Mona Williams, our bookmarks guest, professional storyteller, author and teacher. So Kiri, of course, Mona, a New Zealander, and it seems to me, looking through your choices, that you've done your best to proactively embrace uh, your new country, your home, <laughs> new home country, uh, including... Catherine Mansfield, or had you discovered her before you got to New Zealand? No, I I didn't know anything about New Zealand literature. But when I came, I I met Joy Cowley, and she she lived in Kandala, a little way from me. And I started reading her work. And then my my husband, he's now my ex-husband, he and Witty Ihimaira were friends. Hmm. And so there was this meeting of so many people who were writing. And I just, I, I, it's the thing that kept me sane. There was, there was so much to read. It was such a literary world. And I remember when I went to, to teach at, at even um, intermediate school, I asked that Hone Tufare come to speak to my children because mm. two of his poems were in the school journals. One was Rain and the other one was No Ordinary Sun. Mm. And mm. he came and spoke to my children. They were just starstruck, thunderstruck. And so I I fell in love with the literature. And I would ask, Hone, where did you learn to write? Well, he said he worked for the railways, and but there was the Workers' Education Council. So he was an ordinary person, said he, and he just loved learning to write poetry. And he did such wonderful work. Yeah. And I met Alan Kernow, and he told me the story of his um, writing um, about you know, he and Dennis Glover had the same experience, and they had um, been on the on a beach, and there was a storm, and yet they wrote two different poems. And Dennis Glover's was the one uh, when John and Elizabeth bought the farm. Yeah, yeah. The Brackle made their bed, and Quaddle Waddle 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 Doodle. The Magpie said, and ah. Uh, I I couldn't believe that ordinary children in schools would have such such a high standard of literature given to them freely. You you mentioned the school journal, and that was a bit of a breakthrough moment for you when you submitted to that publication. Yes, uh, but I was I, I would submit, but I was reading, and and the people who were reading were talking about. They're coming here on ships or breaking in the land or somebody was in the wars, the, the 1860 wars, land wars or the 1880 wars. And when great grandpa went to such and such and bringing out the timber with the bullocks and my whole understanding of New Zealand, I think the foundations for that were laid by reading school journals. Mm. It was a, it was such a delightful way to to merge with the land and the people. And it isn't that I so much embraced New Zealand as New Zealand embraced me. Both the Maori community, some friends from Gisborne, and the Pākehā community around me in Wellington. Yes, and, and, you know, Tessa Duda or different different people just saying, Mona, uh, could I show you this? Could I introduce you to that? And your museums that were free, there were there were two here, 
and the libraries with so many books. So when I became a mother, I I would go every fortnight, and you were allowed eight books per person. So the two girls had their eight picture books <laughs> each, and they had six on my card. <laughs> and oh, what a world! What a delight! And I do hope that the libraries will continue to be properly funded. We cannot lose that. That is the soul. That is the heart of many a community. And later, later, about four years ago or so, when I really wanted to become more skilled in computers, I went down to Newtown uh, in Wellington area, and they had free computers and free um, instruction and. In the afternoons, the children could hear storytelling if I wanted to tell them a story, as well as having it read. And they were immigrants, you know, they were immigrant families, some from Somalia, but some from Samoa. And what a place, you know, to meet new and established New Zealanders. <laughs> you 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 developed an interest in, of all things, New Zealand war graves. Can you tell me a bit about that? Say that again, New Zealand, New Zealand war graves. Oh yes. Well, it 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 struck me when I first came from. I was coming down to Wellington. I came in at Auckland, and I met my husband when he because he'd come for he'd come before me to set up a house and so forth. So he said, "Why don't we go?" down to Wellington by train and the first time I did that I was fascinated by the land and the sheep and nearer Wellington the sea but uh, the next time I said could we go by land and we had to go through all these little towns there wasn't the super highway that cut across or left them behind so you'd go to Hamilton and Cambridge and, and as you went through all these tiny towns there was a cenotaph right there in the middle. And I thought, this must be a land of warriors. Hmm. Every single little town had its wonderful little cenotaph. And yet, there weren't the graves. Hmm. And I had to learn that although we have magnificent fighters, they fell overseas. And so if you want to understand much about New Zealand, which I I didn't know it then, but Michael King, Dr. Michael King, the historian, yeah. I worked on one of the one of the series he was doing called Tangata Fenua, and he said New Zealand was shaped by wars. So I said, well, where are the graves? And if we were shaped by the wars for the land in 1860 and 1880, could I go and see those graves? And if we were shaped by other wars, I may not go to see uh, Crimea or the Boer Wars, but I wanted to see the First World War graves and the Second World War graves. And the last thing I did uh, coming home in 2012 from teaching overseas was to go to El Alamein and mm -hmm. Mirza Matru in Egypt before I came home. But I also saw places that, uh, that they had fought in Israel, it was then called Palestine, and I went to Gallipoli, of course, uh, and the, all all of the graves, and, and doing that long tour, I didn't even know it existed. I was going to see the, um, the home of de Gaulle in Lille in France during one of my holidays, and there was a sign saying, 
Commonwealth Grave Tours. You can have three days or five days. And I knew nothing about it. I said, well, I'll pay for the five days. And we set off. And I went to Tecot Cemetery where the poem In Flanders Fields, the poppies grow beneath the crosses row by row. And, um, and seeing a stag on a high um, piece of, of rock symbolizing the soldiers from Newfoundland and going to the Tommy Bar. There's still a bar, and outside of it is a, is a, a dummy dressed in the clothes of the World War I soldier and going to see the Maginot Line and going to go to Arras. They call it Arras. We call it Arras, where the tunnelers were and hearing those stories, going to Albert, Albert, <laughs> and seeing a, a, a stone covered in black pitch. Does it make a difference to your understanding of New Zealand? Absolutely. Absolutely. When, and sometimes, I, I don't say this because it will upset people, but when they say it, it is such a peaceful country, I say, uh, 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 uh. a peaceful country is two things. It's a land that isn't covered in blood, number one, but the people also have to be peaceful. But how do we know how peaceful the country is when the people who came back from the wars were not in any way treated? They they went to the pub. Many of my, my friends uh-huh. said my dad came back and had to go to the pub and sit with his friends because that is all he could do. Yeah. And it is my mother who was the head of the house, but you didn't say that in those days in the 60s, 50s so and 60s. And then when I became aware of the, the term solo mum and how it was scorned, yeah. somebody said, but Mona, a quarter of all the families in New Zealand were headed by females because there were wars and our men died overseas. And so they were, these were war widows on a pension. They weren't women who had decided to have a separation or a divorce. But a quarter of all families living with females in, as, head of, as head of the house, and we didn't know about it, and so, so we were pouring scorn on women. When I came in the 70s and 80s, who wanted to leave a marriage and, and head a family? Um, so there was there was so much, but I understood, and I want to ask, can somebody please invent this word? What is the word for the females who were brought up to be wives and mothers and couldn't do that because the possible husbands were dead overseas? We don't have a word for that tragedy that occurred for women. I've been speaking to Mona Williams, professional storyteller, author and teacher. She delivered the 2023 Pānui for Read NZ, Te Murumuru. It's called Tell Us a Story Out of Your Own Mouth. And I did know we were going to struggle to get all your choices in, Mona, but the time has gone very fast. Maybe as we... Because um, we could probably play one more track. Would you like to do Spartacus Ballet or Fugue Number 2? You know what? I would like to just make a plea, one plea. Yeah. I know that at the moment we have naughty boys, more than naughty criminal youth, doing grabs and smashes and so on, and there is talk 
of giving them boot camp as a way of training them out of yeah. criminality. Yeah. Could I please ask people to think it through before they mouth it again? Because we've had Dame Sylvia Cartwright, we have had Andrew Beecroft, we've had people talking about what happens to boys when they're put into situations. They weren't criminals. Some of them were, were perfectly good Boy Scouts. And they went to Dilworth because they had been poor and somebody wanted to give them a lift, a, a leg up. Some of them were in um, foster care. Some of them were in state care. They were not criminals, but these now are criminals, and we're saying put them in boot camp. But if you put them in boot camp and there's going to be such a huge power differential between these criminal youth and the people who are going to, you know, torture it out of them, you know, shine their shoes with their ass or something, that kind of strict hugely um, traumatic training, that psychological bludgeoning that they will get, if not more than that, I am saying that is not the answer. And I don't know what the answer is. But we've had so many youth kill themselves, uh, you know, commit suicide. And we've had so many commissions saying, when we put boys into these situations and we do not have safeguards, they're sexually abused they, they come out twisted, they come out mangled. I don't want to hear that that happened okay. because nobody spoke up. I am speaking up. Please, let's think it through. Thank you, Mona. And I still have two minutes for a piece of music for you. So what would you like to go out on? I would like the Tchaikovsky. Um, <laughs> Do we have... Yeah. Do we have that one? Is that the Spartacus Ballet? Is that what we're oh, talking about? Oh, we could about? put Spartacus. It doesn't matter. That too is You've beautiful. You've given me a list of about 15. Spartacus yeah? is beautiful. Thank you. And, and I know you spent many years teaching ballet, so it's perhaps a, an appropriate way to to go out. I've really enjoyed speaking, uh, spending some time with you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Thank, and thank you, New Zealand. And thank thank you to this land that has given me citizenship. I love you, New Zealand. Thank you.